Let me tell you a story, podcast number 55. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, it was the age of never mind it is a how long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Well, here we are, December 2016 already, and the season for some jolly holiday readings. Steve will begin with humorous Christmas thoughts from our Wyoming poet friend, Eugene Shea. This one is called White Christmas. Snow for Christmas can be nice in old traditional manner, but when it stays till Easter comes, it tends to lose its glamour. True. (laughs) Christmas in Autumn. I have the Christmas spirit early this year, promoting seasonal generosity, I try. I've been open for receiving Christmas gifts ever since the 4th of July. And this one called Let It Snow. When it comes to winter weather, I'm an easy guy to please. I don't care how cold it gets as long as it doesn't freeze. Crawled out of the sack this morning, thermostat read 14 below. Went back to bed and covered my head. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. This Christmas story is an oldie but goodie from an early 20th century author best known for his children's stories, Robert Gordon Anderson. The chapter is taken from Half Past Seven Stories and features three children with funny names, Jehoshaphat, Marmaduke, and Hepzibiah Green, who were named after very old relatives and who have been anxiously awaiting Christmas Day. I might also note that it appears that it's their hired man who is named the Toy Man. So here we go with Half Past Seven. And, of course, tomorrow came, as it always does, only to become today. Jehoshaphat didn't climb on the chair that morning. There was no need of making black marks with his pencil when that red number 25 stood out above all the others, so bright in its scarlet splendor. As a matter of fact, the children never looked at the calendar at all. They were too busy with their stockings. Now, ordinarily, stockings either hang limp on the line or else fit very evenly on smooth little legs. But the three which hung by the fireplace were stiff and strangely shaped, each full of knobs and bumps. The children rose very early in the morning to get them and were taking out the oranges and apples and tops and nuts and raisins and marbles and hair ribbon for Hepzibiah, of course, and the mouth organs, tin wagons and candy canes when a voice called, Merry Christmas! And Mother's face beamed in the doorway. Then Father's. Soon there was a stamping of feet on the kitchen porch, and the toyman came in from his milking and called, Merry Christmas! And he and mother and father seemed to get more fun out of those stockings than the children themselves, or as much, which is saying a very great deal. 
It was hard to dress properly that morning, and particularly hard to wash behind one's ears. Jehoshaphat put on one stocking inside out, Marmaduke his union suit outside in, and one of his shoes was button and the other lace, but they were all covered up anyway, and old North Wind couldn't nip their flesh, and the constable couldn't arrest them. So it was sufficient, I suppose. How they did it, I don't know, but they managed to get through breakfast somehow. Then there was a glorious spinning of tops and playing of mouth organs and blowing of trumpets throughout the morning. Meantime, the whole house was fragrant with the smells of cooking turkey and sweet potatoes and boiled onions and chili sauce and homemade chow chow and donuts and pumpkin pie and plum pudding and pound cake and caramel cake and jumbles all cut out in fancy shapes, and, but there, the list is long enough to make anyone's mouth water, and that isn't fair. Needless to say, the children didn't try all of the list, though they would have been quite willing, but Mother made a rather good selection for them. Anyway, the smells and tastes of that fine dinner seemed to go very nicely with the wreaths in the window and the bright red berries. But where was the tree? It had vanished, probably, into the parlor. They couldn't go in. Oh, no, not yet. And after Mother had washed all the thousand and one dishes, she entered the parlor, closing the door very carefully so they couldn't get even a glimpse of what was inside. It was funny how Mother found time to do all the things she did that day. Yes, and all the week and the month before it. Her hands... Marmaduke said, were like the magic hands in the Arabian Nights, and he was right. At least the toyman said, You can bet your bottom dollar on that, my son. All of which was very strange, when Marmaduke didn't have any pennies even in his bank, bottom or top, having spent them on surprises for mother and all the rest of the folks. Nice surprises they were, too. In fact, it was really nicer planning them out and getting them with the money he had earned than dreaming about what he would get himself. The parlor door was kept carefully locked all that long afternoon. The children tried to play with the things that had come in their stockings, but somehow these didn't seem as interesting as what they guessed was going on behind the closed door. So they kept their eyes glued there, as Marmaduke's storybook said, though he thought it was funny, when they hadn't put any glue on their eyes. Once in a while... Mother would come out of the parlor to look in the big closet. Then she would journey back very quickly, holding the mysterious parcel tight under her apron or shawl so that they couldn't see it. She would open the door, too, only the tiniest crack, to slip in sideways like a slender fairy. And though a radiance and splendor would shine through, like heaven it was, they could never see what made it, and before they could say, Jack Robinson, the door would be shut, tight shut. And that was all. Oh, oh, it was so hard to wait. At last, about four in the afternoon, the signal was given. The toy man made them all form in line in the dining room, mother leading to show them the way, though they hardly needed a guide. Poor little Mrs. Cricket next, for it wouldn't be Christmas unless they made someone outside their own family happy. Then Jehoshaphat, Marmaduke, and Hepzibiah. No, that is wrong. Hepzibiah ahead, as the boys had decided on ladies first then father and the toy man, carrying little lame Johnny Cricket on his shoulder, and black-eyed Susan bringing up the rear, 
A very big rear she was, father said, for Susan weighed considerably more than her heaviest clothes basket. And so the doors opened. Glory be, sang out Susan, and in that she expressed the feelings of everyone in the long procession that entered the parlor. It was glory, that light, that shining, that radiance, wreaths in the windows, festoons overhead, presents heaped up in the corner and on the floor, and the tree, the tree. It was covered with golden ornaments, and red and silver and blue, and it was draped with strings of popcorn and festoons of red cranberries flung so gracefully over it and everywhere, between the green twigs of the spruce and the red and the gold and the blue and the silver of the ornaments and festoons, scores of little candles were shining brightly, twinkling like stars, like very heaven come down to earth before their eyes. Life has many happy moments and many happy times to offer, but nothing more wonderful than a beautiful shining tree bursting on the sight after one has waited all day, no, really for weeks and months. For ten minutes they all stood and gazed at that tree. Mother and father were smiling happily. Susan clasped her hands very properly, said, Glory! again, and the children danced. Mrs. Cricket wiped the corners of her eyes with her rusty black shawl, and little Johnny Cricket just sat there in delight. But where was the toyman now? He had disappeared as mysteriously as had the tree after they brought it home. He must have forgotten something important, for he couldn't want to do chores when there was that tree to look at. However, the boys were eager enough, both yelling, Now for the presents! Wait a minute, laddies, said their father. Somebody's calling. Now, there was a telephone in their house, the white house with the green blinds by the side of the road. A funny old-fashioned instrument it was, but a very useful one. Nevertheless, it was tinkling. Father went to it, and this is what they heard him say. Hello? Hello? Then, why, is that you? He turned around to the folks in the room. Hush, he warned them. It's Santa Claus. Then he turned to the telephone again very surprised to be talking to so important a person. I am certainly glad to hear from you. How are you? said Father. And he whispered to the boys. He says he's very well. Then into the phone. That's fine. We're very glad to hear it. There was a pause, and Father's voice exclaimed, What? You're not actually coming here? Well, I should say that's the best news I've heard in a long time. And smiling, he told this good news to the folks in the room. Doesn't it beat all, he said. Santa Claus is coming here to pay us a visit. He spoke into the phone again. How soon can you make it? Fifteen minutes? He looked at his watch. Of course. We'll wait for you. Then he hung up the receiver. As long as Sandy will be here so soon, we'd better wait till he comes. And let him distribute the presents, don't you think? He paused a minute, trying to remember. Let me see. When was it I last laid eyes on him? Yes, yes, it's all of 40 years. I was just a little shaver then. I wonder if he's changed much or grown much older. As for the children, they could hardly think, much less talk. They sat there almost in a daze, blinking and looking at the little candles, 
which seemed to wink back at them, as if they had been in on the jolly secret all the time. The youngsters had hardly gotten over their wonder and bewilderment when they heard sleigh bells and aloud, Oh, whoa, ye old reindeer, whoa, when I tell you. Then there was a stamping on the porch, and the old brass knocker was lifted. It fell, clack, clack. The door opened, and in walked the welcome guest. Have you yourself ever seen Santa Claus, or only pictures of him? Well, he really looks like his pictures, only more human, like people you know and love, though, of course, more magnificent. In the first place, he wasn't so fat. He was plump in the stomach, but not so really round all over as in the pictures of him. But perhaps that is because when they were taken, there weren't so many children in the world to make things for, and he has grown just a little thinner since then, being so busy, you know. However, he had on the same red coat, trimmed with white fur, the long beard falling down over his chest and the belt, and the rubber boots, and the red woolen cap on his head. But his face had lost a little flesh, and it wasn't all red as you see in the pictures, but brown and red, like, like, like the toy man's. And his eyes didn't pop out of his head either, but were just like ordinary people's eyes, only kinder, like the toy man's. And these, the children said, were the kindest in the world. Marmaduke wished the toy man would come back so that he might meet Santa, for he was a year-round Santa himself, always making things and doing things for little boys. Oh, but Santa was talking. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, he said, then added, to one and to all. At the sound of his voice, the children forgot their wonder and awe and hurried to him and clasped his knees. And little Johnny Cricket tried to reach for his crutches, but Santa just picked him up in his arms and kissed him, and little Hepzibiah, too. Now Father stood up. Mr. Santa, he began, but Santy interrupted him. No, mister, for me, he told Father, we're among friends. I've known you all ever since you were born. Ho, ho. And he laughed, and his laugh seemed very jolly. Very well, replied Father. Pardon my mistake. Friend Santy, then, would you be so good as to distribute the presents? Delighted, said Sandy with a bow. Marmaduke, you hand them to me, and I'll read off the names. So Marmaduke got down on his knees near the pile of presents and picked out one. It was one of his own, not one for him, but one he had bought for Mother. He couldn't wait to see that look he knew would come in her eyes. She opened it. It was a nice work basket. And my little boy bought it all with the pennies he saved. I know that. She cried in delight, and that look he had waited for shone in her face. Then came a big long box, which Santy handed to Hepzibiah. Santa himself helped her tear off the wrappings, and lo and behold, it was a great big doll with the blue eyes and flaxen hair. So back and forth a procession of presents passed, a pipe for father and one for the toy man, who wasn't there to get it, a football for Marmaduke, a pair of skates for Jehoshaphat, and oh, so many things. Then Marmaduke heard a whisper in his ear. He started, for the voice sounded like the toy man's. But it couldn't have been, for the toy man was still nowhere to be seen. Can't you find something that heap of things for little Johnny Cricket? The voice asked. Marmaduke turned around to discover Santy whispering in his ear. 
And he looked hard, and sure enough, over in the corner was a great big parcel marked, Johnny with a Merry Christmas. Santy undid it and revealed a wagon with handles that could be worked by the arms. It looked very much like the toy man's invention. And it was just the thing for Johnny, who was so lame. When he saw it, he just clasped his hands, and this time the tears did really come, and they ran from the corners of his eyes and down his cheeks. But they were very happy tears. You all are so good to me, was all he said. Marmaduke didn't need Santy to remind him now, and he hunted hard again and found something for Mrs. Cricket from her friends in the White House, a fine alpaca dress. There was something for Black-Eyed Susan, too, and all under that roof and around that tree were very happy. But it was too bad the toy man wasn't there to enjoy it. Now Santy stood up and looked at his watch. It was a great big one with a ship on its face and an anchor on the chain. It resembled the toy man's, and the children thought it odd that there were two such watches anywhere in the world. It's getting late, Santa was saying. I've got a lot of places to visit. But before I go, I want you all to sing a song for me. So together they sang, Peaceful Night, Holy Night. And it sounded very sweet and pretty and made them all think of what Christmas meant, besides just the giving and receiving of presents. Now the youngest ones, all together now. And Jehoshaphat, Marmaduke, Hepzibiah, and little Johnny Cricket sang, without the grown-up people this time. Alone in the manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his soft head. And that song sounded even prettier and sweeter than all than the other, with those little voices singing it around the tree and all its candles. When they had finished, Santa said, Goodbye. Merry Christmas to one and all. He bowed, closed the door behind him, stamped his feet, and whistled to his reindeer. Then the sleigh bells sounded, growing fainter and fainter until they faded quite away. About ten minutes after he had gone, the toyman appeared. It certainly was a shame he had just missed Santa. Marmaduke called, Oh, toyman, you missed him. Santy was here. He was here, was he? The toyman replied, I am sorry, for I'd like to have paid my respects to the old fellow. The funny thing about it was that he didn't seem half as disappointed as the children, that is, Marmaduke and Hepzibiah, particularly Hepzibiah. Jehoshaphat just smiled in a sort of superior way and said nothing, but perhaps that was because he was getting older and had lost some of his enthusiasm. As for Marmaduke, he hadn't been so enthusiastic about seeing Santa ever since Reddy Toms had told him something. But now, after seeing Santa alive and before him, why, he didn't care what any old Reddy Toms said. He had seen Santy and had shaken him by the hand. That was a fun story. (laughs) And speaking of Santa, here's a letter to him. Years ago in England, there was a postal clerk whose job it was to sort through the mail and separate all of the Christmas letters addressed to Santa Claus. One day he came across an envelope with his own return address, and he recognized his little daughter's handwriting. He opened it and found the words she had written. Dear Santa Claus, We are very sad at our home this year. 
Little Charlie, my brother, went up to heaven last week. And when you come to my house, can you get his toys and take them to him? I'll leave them in the corner by the chimney. His hobby horse, his train, and everything. You see, he might miss them in heaven, especially his horse. He loved riding that horse so much. Just take them to him, and don't you don't need to give me anything. But if you could leave something for my daddy that will make him stop crying, it would be the best thing you could do for me. I heard him tell Mommy that the only thing that could cure him was eternity. Could you give him some of that? going to read the words from a Christmas hymn. It's called, As with Gladness, Men of Old. As with gladness, men of old, did the guiding light behold. As with joy, they hailed its light, leading onward, beaming bright. So, most gracious Lord, may we evermore be led to Thee. As with joyous steps they sped to that lowly infant bed, there to bend the knee before him whom heaven and earth adore. So may we with willing feet ever seek thy mercy seat. As they offered gifts most rare in that dwelling rude and bare, so may we with holy joy, pure and free from sin's alloy, all our costliest treasures bring Christ to thee, our heavenly King. Holy Jesus, every day keep us in the narrow way. And when earthly things are past, bring our ransomed souls at last where they need no star to guide, where no clouds thy glory hide. Continuing with our Christmas readings, here is a writing by Elaine Ustra, an Idaho author, entitled Star of Hope. When others talk about their wonderful childhood Christmas traditions passed from generation to generation, some of us want to flee the scene. Our memories of Christmas are filled with hurt and pain rather than joy and laughter. My memories are sad. I can vividly recall the white, metal, glitter-covered star that brightened our picture window. The star was our family's only Christmas decoration, but it told me the Christmas season had come again. As a little child, I would gaze at that star for minutes at a time. Somehow, it gave me hope, despite my chaotic, unpredictable circumstances. The first Christmas ever recorded was also far from perfect. That Christmas did not include the smell of pine in the air, dazzling decorations based on past tradition, the silver flash of tinsel on a tree, or a feast fit for a king set at a beautiful table surrounded by a loving, laughing family. In fact, Joseph, one of the key players that first Christmas, was less than thrilled when he learned Mary was pregnant. He considered calling off the engagement because he knew he was not the father. 
But not until an angel visited Joseph and told him the child growing inside Mary's womb was God incarnate, Emmanuel, did he agree to marry her. At that very time, the ruler of the Roman world, Caesar Augustus, issued a decree for a national census. Every citizen was to go to his own town to register. Joseph came from the house and lineage of David, so he and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem to register, which was a three-day journey. The Bible says Mary was great with child. The trip must have been difficult for her. When Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, the inn was already full. Scripture doesn't tell us if Jesus was born in a stable or out in the open air beneath the night stars with animals nearby. Whatever the setting, it was far from sanitary. Yet, that's where God sent his son. Mary covered her baby, the Son of God, with strips of cloth and placed him in a feeding trough. Born in the likeness of man, Jesus was God in human flesh, an amazing act of utmost humility. As John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That night, nearby shepherds, humble men who were often shunned by society, were the first to hear the amazing news of Jesus' birth, from an angel no less. The glory of God shone around them as the angel declared, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Once again, God chose the weak and the foolish of this world to confound the wise. Jesus came to bring salvation and deliverance to the poor, the oppressed, and the despised of this world, as well as to the wealthy. Sometime later, Magi from the east saw a unique star in the east and followed it until they came to Jerusalem where they searched for the newborn king of the Jews. But he wasn't there. King Herod, who was perturbed by the idea of someone else becoming king, asked the Jewish priests and teachers about the prophesied child. They told him he was to be born in Bethlehem, so Herod sent the wise men there. They followed the star to Bethlehem, where it stopped and hovered above the house where the young child was living with his parents. Following before Jesus, the Magi worshipped him and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In a dream, they were told not to return to Herod, who plotted to kill the king of the Jews, so the wise men returned home another way. God's purposes for our lives are often not immediately apparent, as they were not obvious to the wise men or to Joseph and Mary. Soon after the Magi left, Mary and Joseph had to escape to Egypt to protect Jesus from Herod's jealous, evil plan to murder him. But later, Jesus was killed when he sacrificed his life to bear the sins of the world. His family and his followers did not at first see God's purpose in allowing his death. Not until his return to life three days later and his ascension to heaven did his death make sense to them. Like his birth, Jesus' life was not sanitized. He suffered abuse, pain, frustration, anger. He was misrepresented. His family turned on him. He experienced deep, hard, human life. But he endured because he knew his purpose. In the same way, God uses difficulties past and present to mold us and shape us to be like his son. I now know why the star of my childhood gave me hope. 
At the age of 28, I started attending a Bible study on the book of John and came upon a verse I knew so well, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This time, something was different. The word loved leaped off the page and a joy unknown to me before entered into my heart. A light turned on inside of me, and I was born again. I saw and understood God loved worthless me. I read the verse over and over. The hope I'd sent so long ago in the glitter-covered star revealed itself to me. Romans 5, 3-5 tells us, We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials because they help us develop strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. This hope won't disappoint us, for we know how dearly God loves us. He even gives us His Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His love. John 8.12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I marvel at all God has done in me since my new birth thirty-some years ago through His Son, Jesus, whose birth, death, and resurrection instill new life in me, and in you, and light our way. Look upon the beautiful scene of a babe wrapped in rags in a trough full of hay. You may be surrounded by trouble, but please don't run away. Like the Magi who followed a star to gaze upon our Savior's face, turn to the one who came to earth for you and for me. See his great delight in you and his love for you. He came to save you and me. We'll conclude with this very short poem by Martin Luther. Where earth a thousand times is fair, beset with gold and jewels rare, she yet were far too poor to be, a narrow cradle, Lord, for thee. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckylyles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.